We return to our study of Fundamentals of the Faith. Last time, we completed Chapter 3, The Attributes of God. And before we begin Chapter 4, let's review our memory verses uh, from what we've studied in the first three chapters. Okay, Chapter 1, Introduction to the Bible. Do you remember our verse? Kind of? Okay. There you go. Everybody was watching you, Mark. Oh, good. You did great. Okay, what's the reference? Right, 2 Timothy 3.16. Our study, of course, all Bible doctrine is based on that Scripture is true. So that was our beginning chapter, chapter 1, 2 Timothy 3.16. Chapter 2? What about chapter 2? What's our memory verse from chapter 2? Okay. I see one verse. <laughs> I know that. Yes. No, that's no. Well, that, that's not the verse. <laughs> you don't need to be ashamed. You don't so know the verse. Not, that no, that's so not it. Does not need to be ashamed. There you go. Yeah, Second Timothy two fifteen. Be diligent to present yourselves approved to God, a worker who's not ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Okay. Bible comes from God. God is telling us to study the Bible to know what it says. Chapter three. The attributes of God, let me give that one to you. First Chronicles 29.11, by David. Remember, for you, O Lord, are the greatness and power and glory and victory and majesty. Indeed, all the heaven and the earth is yours. For yours is the dominion, O Lord, and you exalt yourself as head over all. So the, those verses, and we'll keep going over them just as a way to review, not to put you on the spot, but to review them for the importance as they are the foundation for not only this study, but really for our own personal study. So we move to chapter 4 for tonight. The person of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the living word. The Bible is the written word. Both are special revelation. Jesus, the living word, special revelation. Scripture, the written word, special revelation. Creation, conscience, Providence, general revelation. So we're looking at special revelation that God has given us in this time, time in His Son. These two very important verses in John 1, 1 and John 1, 14. Very important verses. In the beginning was? Word was God and the Word was with God. Good. Verse 14 Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Then we saw his glory. Begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So the doctrine of the person of Christ, it's called Christology. That's the doctrine, it's called Christology. It's crucial to the Christian faith. In our verses, we see he was from the beginning. He was God, is God, and that he became a man. Do you remember last week in the attributes of God, some of the attributes we talked about? Eternal, invisible, <coughs> immense, all-knowing, everywhere present, all-powerful, and so on. That person became a man. That individual, even though the Trinity is co-equal, co-existing, there's still three persons of the Godhead. 
became a human. The one from all eternity became a man. And the Bible is telling us that that is true. Those verses alone are essential to knowing the Lord Jesus. John 1.1, 1, 1, John 1.14. 1, and for salvation. We have to know these verses to be saved. Not so much to put them in memory, but we have to know that he was God and he became a man to be saved. Does anybody who believe Jesus is not a man, can they be saved? No. And vice versa. Can people believe he was a great prophet and only a man and not God? Can they be saved? No. So when somebody professes to be a Christian, but they don't believe either one of those particular doctrines, the Bible teaches they must be saved. They, they believe they have to be saved. If they don't, they're not. So if you ask a Mormon or a Jehovah Witness if they're Christian, they would tell you yes or not? Depends on the individual. Okay. Some would, some wouldn't. Yeah. Because if soteriology is the study of salvation, that's coming up in chapter 6. Christology is tonight, that's the study of Christ. But here's the point. If the Lord isn't who he was claimed to be, then here's the issue. Then his atonement was deficient. It wasn't sufficient. And as we'll talk about here in just a few minutes, we're going to look about how some people view who he is and their view of the atonement. The view of payment for sin. So the doctrine of, of Christ may include a couple things here, both a study of his person, that's what we're going to do tonight, and then next week, the next time, chapter 5, the study of his work. Two different things. They're two different things. However, since his principal work was the atonement, what's the definition of the atonement? Why is the atonement important? We'll hear that term t- tossed around. What is the definition of atonement? Sacrifice of his blood for our sins. Mm-hmm. Sacrificed himself, shed his blood for our sins. That's right. By the shedding of his blood, he took away our sins. And its results. That's the atonement. Mm-hmm. That's right. So, I want us to look at, think of in Christology tonight, theologians have put them in three kind of categories in a sense. In Christology, the study of Christ. And basically the doctrine is organized this way. Number one is pre-incarnate state. We just talked about that last week in the attributes of God. That's his pre-incarnate state. The second would be, of course, his incarnation or humiliation or his earthly ministry. That's the second aspect of it. Then the Lord Jesus can be organized in the third part of his present and future ministries. In other words, when he rose and now sits in heaven, what's he presently doing? And what's going to be his future ministry? So that's how theologians have broken this particular doctrine down in three parts. His pre-incarnate state, his incarnation, and his future ministries and present um, ministry. The problems basically occur here in this particular chapter when he became a man and breaking it down into how can someone have two natures? What does it mean when he emptied himself? You know, what does it mean about the peccability of Christ or the impeccability of Christ? Meaning, was he able to sin and didn't? Or was he unable to sin and didn't? That's where it gets very difficult. And that's what we're going to look at.
tonight, some of it, anyway, tonight in the study of the person of the Lord Jesus. So with that said, go to page 35 if you're not there already. And we're going to look at the top right-hand corner that's highlighted. By the way, this particular um, chapter, you can hear more about that if you download John MacArthur's message. If you go to gty.org forward slash FOF, and you'll see that the title is called Christ Above All. That really gives a lot of context to this particular chapter. Jesus Christ is the central figure of all human history. There's never been anyone like him. He is regarded as a great teacher, a religious leader, a prophet, the Son of God, even God himself. The claims he made, as well as those that others have made about him, have propelled him into the center of endless controversies throughout man's history. You know, when you think about it, wars have been fought about him. Countries have divided over him. Even followers of him have been divided on some things with him. But he's the central figure in history. Charles Spurgeon said this, quote, Christ is the great central fact in the world's history. To him, everything looks forward or backward. All the lines of history converge upon him. Unquote. It's true. Just look at our calendar. B.C., before Christ. A.D., after Christ, in a sense. Back to your notes. It said, Pontius Pilate unwittingly summed it up when he said, Then what shall I do with Jesus who is called Christ? So before anyone can answer that question for himself, he must first understand who Jesus is. And I thought it would be good if we take a kind of a different direction here and look at what others view Jesus, who he is, and what he did. So up here on the screen, we're going to look at, uh, to point out some religious views, I think, which which are helpful. Um, You know what, I'm going to wait on that one. It's not going to be on the screen. Let me just give them to you, though, okay? Uh, The Mormons. What do the Mormons believe about Christ? He's a brother of, um, I think a brother of, of, of uh, a brother, not a, uh, of Satan. He is an elder brother of all men. Yeah. Right? right. He was created from a father and mother in heaven. So he's a created being. And so he's not God. He was created through the sexual union of the Father and Mary. And his death on the cross did not provide atonement for sin. That's the Mormon's view. Jehovah's Witness, Jesus is not God as well. Before he lived, he was Michael the Archangel. Uh, Jehovah made the universe through Jesus. But on earth, he just lived the perfect life as a perfect man. So therefore, this death on the cross did not provide atonement for sins. That's Jehovah's Witness. Christian science, Jesus was not the Christ. Christ meaning the anointed one. He was not the Christ, but who displayed the Christ idea, meaning Jesus was the idea of a perfect man. And so his death on the cross, they don't recognize, did not provide atonement for sins. Scientology barely mentions Jesus at all in their writings. And he was not the creator, so he didn't provide atonement for sins. Judaism, they see Jesus as either an extreme teacher or they see him as someone who was a false messiah. And so what are they? Still waiting for their Messiah. Hinduism, Christ is a teacher. He was a son of God. He was not the son of God. Death on the cross was meaningless, didn't provide atonement for sin. That's Hinduism. Islam, Jesus is not the son of God. He's one of many gods. Muhammad was one. Jesus is another. No atonement for sin. 
And I could give you the Hare Krishnas, I could give you Buddhism, I could give you the Unification Church. No atonement for sin. So the theme of that, of course, the theme of all of those, and I want to give you those, is because everybody has a view of who Jesus is. Everybody does. Even if they don't know who he is, they have a view that he doesn't exist, but there's a view. And anybody who's been taught about him have a view of him as well. So that's the problem. Who's going to provide atonement for sin? Romans 3.23, all of sin comes short of the glory of God. Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. So the Bible is true. Chapter 1, we just went through chapter 1. All Scripture is God-breathed. Since all are sinners and the wages of sin is death, who's going to provide the atonement? Somebody has to provide it. And there's only two that provide it. Jesus, the true way, and people's death in hell for all eternity to pay the other way. Jesus pays for it all, believing on Him. Unbelievers pay throughout eternity because the wages of sin is death. So the atonement is always an issue when it comes to the Lord Jesus. And I think you might be interested to know that it's just not some of the religious groups I just mentioned. But also, listen to this one too. I was reading this the other day, and I thought you might find it interesting. This was from the Associated Press in London, that a majority of the Anglican bishops, that's relating to the Church of England, they did a survey there, quote, according to this survey and the majority of the bishops, Quote, Christians are not obliged to believe that Jesus Christ was God, unquote. So it's not just some that we think would be cultish. It's people who would be from the Church of England. Some would think that. So apart from Christianity, here's what we're going to look at in a future study, but something that will be a foundation here for us as we look at the person of Christ. Apart from Christianity, all other religions have an erroneous view of Christology. They have a wrong view of Christ. And it will show itself in these ways. They either don't believe in the virgin birth or His deity or His bodily resurrection or His second coming, or they don't submit to Him as Lord. And in the church circles, if I could be so bold as to say sometimes in a church circles, like maybe even ours, Bible church, people make a profession of faith, go to Bible studies, Read the Bible, but don't submit to the submission of Christ as Lord by obeying what the Bible says to do. That is, as a pattern of life, they did believe in Christ. We'll get to that in a later chapter too. Obedience is always a mark of a Christian. We always don't obey, but how do we respond when we disobey, according to the Bible? So those five ways, just to throw some things to you, are views that people have a wrong view of Christology. Christology will manifest itself. Do you mind repeating those? Sure. Don't believe in his virgin birth. Don't believe in virgin birth, his deity, bodily resurrection, second coming, submission to Jesus as Lord. So there are some views out there I thought you would find interesting. There were so many that were so interesting to read. So in our conversations, even with ourselves in our own mind as we think things through and with other people, two things are always going to come up. 
in our minds to clarifying. The Bible is true. Jesus is the only way and the authority. And if, and if you and I in our conversations can kind of funnel everything down to those, that's where the conversations will really flesh itself out with what people believe. Let's go back in our workbook and let's look at the God who became man. Before we do, any questions? So now you're talking about people that are alive today or have died since Christ was alive on earth because they did not have those five standards for the people that were alive before Christ was born, the Old Testament person. Salvation is always believing in God and that there would be a Messiah to come to pay for atonement for sins. And Old Testament saints were always saved by grace. So the grace of God to believe in God is how people were saved. Um, Isaiah 55, 1, Come if anyone thirsts, come to the waters and drink. I've heard people say that during those three days that Christ was a, rose from the tomb, part of the time he spent preaching to and getting Old Testament people to believe so they could go to heaven. He didn't get them to believe. They already believed when they died. Yeah, that's what I should say. Yeah, yeah. So he went down and <clears throat> pro- proclaimed to the demons. He he took captivity captive. He he preached to the demons that they'd lost. Yeah. But they were waiting for him. He he paid atonement, but it's not to say they were in they were in hell, which is a resting place, a a holding place, so to speak. But he came, paid the price, and glory. Go to heaven. That's a really difficult doctrine in a sense because um, Old Testament saints and New Testament saints saved the same way by God's grace. We're just waiting for the Messiah to come, the fulfillment of the promise of Genesis 3. Remember in our biblical timeline in Genesis 3 that there would be a Messiah to come? They saw him become a man and then fulfilled that particular promise for their salvation to be paid for. But they didn't suffer. Old Testament saints didn't go to hell to suffer. There was nothing for them to pay for because their coming Savior was going to pay for it. Unless they didn't believe. But if they didn't believe, that's like people now. Uh, no difference. Unbelief is the monstrous sin that condemns all men. Not that people have to believe in election to be saved. They have to believe in Christ to be saved. If you do not believe that I am He, you will die in your sins, Jesus said in John 8. So, yeah. Unbelief. Don't believe God. And isn't that the story of the Israelites in the Old Testament? They didn't obey, didn't do what he said, and he was patient. Sometimes he would judge them. But yeah, they were to die in their unbelief. Then they're lost. Go through life and get to heaven and 
Yeah, well, first of all, a couple things real quick, and then we'll get into our study. First of all, they wouldn't be Christians. Correct. But they thought they were. Second of all, anybody that has desires and are thinking, I hope I am, I think I want to be, that's a good starting point that you're saved. Because the wicked do not seek God, God is in none of their thoughts. That's Psalm 10.4. So, yeah. But that's a frightening thing to kind of examine ourselves. Okay, what do I believe? What do I believe? And that's why I gave you some of the views of some of the other religions. Because it's easy to get sidetracked. Because they may talk about God, may talk about Christ, may talk about the Holy Spirit. Do they believe He's the Son of God? Do they believe He rose from the dead? Do they believe what He says and submit to it? All those things come into play. And the only reason anybody does is through the power of the Spirit. And by God's grace. Generally, usually when anybody asks and wonders if they're going to be rejected at the, when they meet God, is, is usually a good sign because people generally don't think that way. And when exposed to the truth, even though they may not understand it, which we've all been there and will be there again, it's okay. What does the Bible say? Is that true? Or do I just let it go and go, well, they're wrong? Yeah, I don't, I'm not going to believe in a God like that. Well, that's your interpretation of the truth. Those are cop-out lines. Because generally, cop-out lines are copping out. Because if some, we may not agree with something, but we should always eventually get to, okay, what does the Bible say about that? This is what I'm seeing. <laughs> Chapter 2. Be diligent to present yourself so prove to God a worker. Rightly divided. I have to study it. And let's be honest. Most people don't want to study it. Because it's hard. And so, and you know what? We're all like that. To some measure or another. You know? And it's interesting that the Bible says you were once like that. So that we don't take a high road that we think we're better. It's because maybe we're in a Bible study and we may have knowledge that doesn't mean anything. So, yeah. So look out, okay? The issue is always Christ, authority of Scripture. Always Jesus, authority of Scripture. You're always looking for that. And, and so be ready when they start text-proofing to show what they believe. And that's a good thing. When you get in a conversation with people, start to give verses of why they believe that's the start of a really good conversation. So, anyway. Let's keep going. The God who became man. He became a man. Not became in the sense of ceasing to what He was before. Let me say that again. He did not cease to be what He was before when He became a man. Jesus Christ came into the world in human flesh. By coming into the world as a man, he voluntarily set aside the independent use of his divine attributes and took on the form of a man. He was fully human, a man in every way except he was without sin. This is referred to as the incarnation. He took on humanity. He became a man. Let's look at a couple of verses here. Let's look at Philippians 2, 6 and 7. Christy, if you have those, if you could read both of them, Philippians 2, 6 and 7. Who, though he was the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. What does Philippians 2, 6 say about Jesus before he was born. What was his status? He was the form of God. Form of God because he was was God. God. He was God. He's equal with God. Paul's writing he's equal. He's the same. He's one and the same. He's alike. Okay, Philippians 2.7. What did Jesus do? He made himself, making the form of a 
servant being born in the likeness of men. That's right. He was born in the likeness of men. And he emptied himself of his privileges. He didn't empty himself of being God. He emptied himself of his privileges. Some people don't believe that. A lot of people don't believe that. But the Bible that Christie read, Philippians 2.7, he emptied himself or made himself of no reputation. He didn't count deity to be grasped to because that's who he was from all eternity. As we looked at last week, chapter 3. And note that it was self-imposed, his emptying of himself, of his privileges. No one forced him to come into that particular way into the world. His decision, his choice. Why would he do that? Since the Bible says that's true, it's God himself, became a man, still God, emptied himself of no reputation, of his privileges. Why did he do it? He knew God's plan for us to be able to go to heaven. Right. We weren't able to do it without him. He was able to do it because only he could pay for the atonement. Only he could make the payment. Nobody else could make the payment. Let's look at the self-emptying just a little bit. And this will be on the screen up here, talking about his, uh, it's called the kenosis, or the self-emptying of Jesus. So let's look at that here just a little bit. Although he emptied himself, he never surrendered his deity. He never did. He was always God. Remember in Matthew, when the devil tried to get him, turn this rock into bread? And remember how many days had it been since he'd eaten? Forty days. When's the last time you and I went one day without eating? He went a month and ten days. And he could do it. But he never surrendered his deity. Satan knew it. And here are the five ways his self-emptying is so apparent. His heavenly glory is one way. Christ gave up a face-to-face glorious relationship with God for the waste of the earth, basically. He also gave up the adoring presence of angels angels for the rejection of men. He, he gave up the angels glorifying Him in a face-to-face relationship with the Father. Another way in His... Emptying was his independent authority. He gave that up. He emptied it himself of his authority. He completely submitted himself to the will of the Father. And here's one. Learned to be a servant. Didn't we last week say that God is omniscient and knows everything? The Bible says he learned how to submit to the Father's will. Hebrews 5, 7, although he was a son, he learned obedience by what he suffered. So how can somebody who knows everything learn something? I don't know. So he came to do the Father's will, not his own. So he gave up his independent authority. Here's another way. Number three, he set aside the prerogatives of his deity. We talked a little bit about that. And again, he didn't give up his deity, but he gave up the free exercise of the use of his attributes. He limited himself to the point of even saying this. He didn't even know the time of his second coming. No man knows the hour of the day except the Father, Jesus said. How can that be? He knows everything. And yet he laid aside his omniscience when he didn't even know of his own return. Here's another one. 
Fourth of five is personal riches. He emptied himself of his own personal riches. You know that Jesus was very poor in this world. He owned very little. And yet he owns everything. The Bible says the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. In uh, the New Testament. But he didn't, he, didn't, he didn't have much. Last one. A favorable relationship with his father. Remember on the cross he cried out, my, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Okay. He was out on the cross by himself. And the fellowship he'd always known from all eternity was broken when he was alone. So though Jesus renounced all the privileges and never ceased to be God, at any moment he could have destroyed his enemies, but he didn't do it. He voluntarily set aside his divine attributes to be the perfect sacrifice for those who would believe in him. Interesting, isn't it? How does the Bible describe what Jesus looked like? Isaiah talks about how he had no form of beauty. That's good, Pamela. That's right. Isaiah described him as you just described him. No form of beauty. Uncomely. Very common. Not like Hollywood portrays him. Not li- No. <laughs> no. living in obscurity in Nazareth for 30 years. Remember in the Bible, and the Bible said, that's, that's Joseph's son? You're talking about Joseph's son? Yeah. So, all that to say is, that's because he emptied himself of his exercise of his attributes and was a man in every way, perfect in every way. Questions? If you were Joseph and you heard that, is that Joseph's son? How many days a week would you have to go see your personal psychiatrist (laughs) 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 to get your self-worth back? (laughs) Yeah, that's a hard question to answer, isn't it? (laughs) In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was... God and the Word was with God. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we, and we, who's the we? Apostles. We beheld His glory. We, we saw Him. Remember in 1 John 1, we held Him. We touched Him. We heard Him. We saw Him. Yeah. Amazing. It truly is. Okay. Jesus was a man like us in your notes. Describe Jesus' human growth and development as a youth in Luke 2, 40 and 52. Pamela, do you have that? Can you look that up? Yeah. Luke 2, 40 and 52. And then we'll um, jump down to you, Mark. Okay. Mark 4, 20. Mark 4, 38. And then Paul, Luke 4, 2. And then Shirley, John 4, 6. And then Michael, we'll jump over to you to John eleven thirty five. 35. Okay, Luke 2, 40 says, And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. And then verse 52 says, and Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. Okay, good. So how would you describe him? How, how did his development happen as a youth? What happened to him? He grew and became strong. He became strong? Good. What else? He increased in wisdom and stature. <coughs> favor with God and men. Interesting, isn't it? that the Bible would describe him that way as the God-man. 
So Luke is describing his mental, his physical, his spiritual, and social growth, isn't he? And he developed and continued to grow in knowledge of things as he experienced life. He grew up. Developed in his spiritual awareness. He was in the temple, talking with people, wasn't he? Yeah. And I think it's good to note that in each of those four areas mentioned about his personal growth, he was always perfect at each step along the way. Because if he wasn't, then he couldn't be a perfect sacrifice to pay for the atonement for our sins. So he didn't disobey his mom and dad. He did what he was told to do. He was he fulfilled the law. He did everything perfectly. Page thirty six. What was Jesus' response when he was tired in Mark four thirty eight? Okay. But he was in, in the stone asleep on the on the cushion and they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? <laughs> yeah, don't you care? So what did he do? What was he doing? He was, sleeping. he was sleeping just like us, just like anybody else. And the Bible says God never grows weary, says in Isaiah. Well, he did because he laid aside his attributes. Good. Luke 4 2. I'm going to start with verse 1. Sure. To lead into it. Please. <laughs> and Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. <laughs> no kidding. <laughs> What was his response? He was hungry. Yeah, I know that seems pretty obvious, but he slept and he was hungry. Good. How did Jesus feel after a journey in John 4, 6? Jacob's will was there, so Jesus, weary as he was, as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. So he was weary. He was weary, yeah. He was tired from walking just like us, wasn't he? How did Jesus react when he was grieved? John eleven thirty five. Jesus wept. If anybody wants to memorize a verse, it's that one. <laughs> okay. There you go. He wept. And Luke twenty four thirty nine. What did Jesus say about himself? Doesn't that seem simple in a way? You know, just reading the verses and he he slept and he was hungry and he grew tired and he cried and he had flesh and bones. The Bible is teaching us that he is true humanity. And even as we learned last week, he's also God himself. So Jesus had to be a man if he was to represent us. He was not if Jesus wasn't a real man, then the death on the cross was meaningless. That's the point. That's the book of Colossians. That's why Colossians was written. Jesus was an apparition. He was a phantom. He wasn't flesh and bones. Let me give you a couple of thoughts here, if I could, on the purposes of the incarnation this is not in your workbook but i thought this would be would be helpful and would be good as we look at it together just the purposes of the incarnation 
We know he became a man, but let's look specifically at their importance. So I got seven thoughts for you. I hope will help. Number one, to reveal God to us. The only way man can see the Father is to know about the Son. It's the only way. And by knowing Jesus, which by the way we'll meet one day, we will have seen the Father. And so through His incarnation, He reveals God to us. Number two, to provide an example for our lives. Well, the life of Jesus is held up as a pattern for us for living today. That's the pattern. 1 John 2.6 and 1 Peter 2.21. So simply, if we don't have the incarnation, we don't have the example. How would we know what a perfect man would look like and live, in a sense? We wouldn't know that. Three, provide an effective sacrifice for sin. We talked about that earlier. Good to repeat here. Well, without the Lord Jesus, we have no Savior. And the Bible says in Isaiah 43, 11, besides me, there is no other Savior. So without Him, we would not have a Savior and sin requires death for its payment. So Jesus came. And since God can't die and Jesus lived the perfect life, He can provide the atonement and those who believe in Him can be saved. So we must have a God-man person. We must have what the theologians call it the hypostatic union. One person, two natures. Not a fusion of natures. Not a mixing of natures. Not a half divided, half the other nature. He's fully man, fully God. The God-man. So when he became a man, a man, he forever became the God-man. Prior to his birth, he was spirit. And because of his great love for us, he became a man. So he could save us and redeem us and buy us back with his blood. Number four is to fulfill the Davidic covenant. You guys remember when Gabriel announced to Mary that her son would be given the throne of David? Remember that? Okay. That had to be fulfilled. And it can't be fulfilled by an invisible God. There has to be a person on the throne visible. So when Jesus became a man, he occupies the throne. When the time will come to reign in the millennial kingdom. Right now he sits at the right hand of God. He will reign physically on David's throne as promised from 2 Samuel 7 when God spoke to David that he would be from his loins would have the eternal king. So when you go to Israel you can physically see David's throne? Today. No, because the throne's the temple's been destroyed. Okay. Yeah, it's been destroyed a couple of times. Um, that's why moving ahead in the biblical timeline, Israel is waiting to go back. Remember, to the temple. Why? Make sacrifices. Why? Atoning for the sins. Old Testament laws. And and the Antichrist will make a pact with them. You can go back. You can build. All that ties together. Jesus will come at the beginning of the millennial kingdom, second coming prior. He will reign in Jerusalem there on the throne but there. There is no chair right now that we or a throne, like a chair. No, I knew what you meant. But it's more majestic. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Number five. 
Also note, only Jesus qualifies to be the eternal king. Nobody else qualifies. So he truly is a prophet, priest, and king. It's the Savior. Speaks for the people to God on their behalf. He's a priest. He's a mediator. And he's the king. He rules. Five. To destroy the works of the devil. Satan must be defeated in the arena he dominates. Where does Satan dominate? The world. God of this world. God of the age. He's going to defeat him here in his world. Because Satan has usurped his throne, so to speak. Jesus is going to take it back. Number six. To be a sympathetic high priest. You know, Jesus can feel our weaknesses because he was tested just as we are. He understands. Because if he wasn't tested, then it would be like people would accuse him of, you don't know what it's like. He does know what it's like. Last one. To be a qualified judge. Most people think of God as the judge before whom will all appear. The truth is, it's Jesus that will be that judge. John 5, 22 and 27. Why must the judge be God? So that all the judgments are good and right. There's no unjust decision, and only God can do that. So, there you go. Seven thoughts on the incarnation purposes. Any questions? Okay. Back to the workbook. Is Roman numeral 2 the man who is God? Let's stop there for this week because this one is a, is a pretty important section of this particular part of the workbook. We'll also then pick up not only the God who became man, the man who is who is God, and then we'll do that next week as part of our second section here in chapter 4.